Brainiacs to the Hemingwayless Podcast, Book 5, Chapter 8, Weddings Everywhere, and many euphemisms were used by the public for Tom and his bride. What do you think was behind them? Swim Southern Mama Fishy says, probably a bit of jealousy. There is that large dowry, and Thomas's perceived aristocratic airs and mannerisms. I had an aha moment about Clothilde. We don't know much about her. She's always around, always hungry, still hungry despite dinner and dessert. Clothilde's hunger is her leitmotif throughout the book, and I finally understood worlds about her. She wants so much more from life, and here she is stuck as to poor relation. There we go. Tekrovic says, I'll take that. Sorry, no he doesn't. <laughs> he says, I like that take. Um, I'll take that. I don't know why I read that so wrong. He says, I like that take. She is so repressed and downtrodden that gluttony is the only means for her to manifest her hunger for life. I saw her merely as a manifestation of the Buttonbrook's hunger for money, influence, respectability, a symbol for the greedy, carnivorous side of her family. Music and poetry, Gerda and Thomas's union, is conventional on the surface, but their temperaments lean on the artistic side. The euphemisms directed at both have one thing in common, they're different. Somehow they defy convention, there's something not quite right. They both have an artistic streak that only comes out in music for Goethe and the occasional poetry quote from Thomas. The euphemism peculiar for Goethe basically means she has personality where all others are bland and grey. She is the nail that sticks out too much of the timber framing of the famous Lübeck houses. Difference is looked upon with suspicion. I think uh, in the translation I was reading, it was called her silly, and it, and there was there was a few um, adjectives for them, and they were always kind of in double quotes. So the girls called her quote unquote silly, and it just seemed like very much like a getting at something particular. I don't know what, uh, but maybe they are just yeah jealous haters. Haters, and I think you're probably right, Tekrific. They stick out a bit, they're a little bit different, they're not scared to be unique, and so other people find that kind of threatening. Unfortunately, it's always been that way, hasn't it? I wanted to say thank you um, to the Patreons again, and to David, who uh, has upped his pledge from $1 five dollars huge thank you so much david and i'm glad that you are uh, getting some value out of this community the podcast the subreddit whatever it is really appreciate the support and again same to all my patrons patreon.com slash the hemingway list if you want to get behind it i've been um I've been uh, tinkering again with the Bogan War and Peace. I took a big break from it. You know, it's someone, I guess it's the kind of project where um, it takes a lot of focus and a lot of time, and I've been working full-time recently, um, and just, you know, not having time to do the War and Peace thing. Um, but recently, working from home and working full-time, I've gotten into a rhythm with my work, 
got it into a routine finally after about you know six or seven months and I'm finding now that I have these kind of um, dedicated little brain breaks throughout my day you know the thing about working from home is you don't have your breaks even though you're supposed to you know and if you ask HR of course we're having our breaks on time but you just don't you just sit there and you work at a completely different pace it's like you work slower but with the very little interruption uh, and so overall your productivity is higher at least for me it is higher than ever um, and so you got to kind of remind yourself to go oh I've been sitting here for five hours and yes I've been you know tinkering back and forth I haven't been flat out but I haven't really like got up and had like you know 20 minutes of of uh, not doing anything work related <laughs> so anyway my point is this I'm scheduling in little tinker sessions during my lunch break during my morning break during my afternoon break um, sometimes between meetings you know you find yourself with that little no man's land of like you know I've got 20 minutes until the next meeting uh, oh, you know I'll tinker so all that to be said I've kind of got it on my second screen uh, and I'm rambling I think I must be tired because I'm rambling I do apologize let's just read chapter 9 um, and if you do want to um, pledge on the Patreon please do patreon.com slash the Hemingway list <clears throat> that word didn't come out properly but I'm pretty sure you know what it was chapter 9 some 6 months later Consul Buttonbrook returned with his bride from Italy. The March snows lay in Broad Street as the carriage drove up at five o'clock before the front door of their simple painted facade. A few children and grown folk had stopped to watch the homecoming pair descend. Frau Antoni Grunlich stood proudly in the doorway behind her, the two servant maids with white caps, bare arms and thick striped skirts. She had engaged them beforehand for her sister-in-law. Flushed with pleasure and industry, she ran impetuously down the steps. Gerda and Thomas climbed out of the trunk-laden carriage wrapped in their furs, and she drew them into the house in her embrace. Here you are, you lucky people, to have travelled so far in the world, knowest thou the house. High pillared are its walls, Gerda. You are more beautiful than ever. Here I must kiss you, no, so, on the mouth. How are you, Tom, old fellow? Yes, I must kiss you too. Marcus says everything has gone well here. Mother is waiting for you at home. But you can first just take yourselves comfortable. Make yourselves comfortable. Will you have some tea or a bath? Everything is ready. You won't complain. Jacobs did his best and I have done all I could too. They went together into the vestibule and the servants brought in the luggage with the help of the coachman. Tony said, The rooms here in the parterre you will probably not need for the present. For the present, she repeated, running her tongue over her upper lip. Look, this is pretty. And she opened a door directly next to the vestibule. Simple oak furniture, ivy at the windows. Over there, the other side of the corridor, is another room, a larger one. Here on the right are the kitchen and larder. But let's go up. I will show you everything. They went up the stairs, which were covered with a dark red runner. 
Above, behind a glass partition, was a narrow corridor which led to the dining room. This had dark red damask wallpaper, a heavy round table upon which the samovar was steaming, a massive sideboard and chairs of carved nutwood with rush seats. Then there was a comfortable sitting room upholstered in grey, separated by portieres from a small salon with a bay window, and furniture in green striped rep. A fourth of this whole story was occupied by a large hall with three windows. Then they went into the sleeping room. On the right of the corridor it had flowered hangings and solid mahogany beds. Tony passed on to a small door with open work carving in the opposite wall and displayed a winding stair leading from the bedroom to the lower floors, the bathroom and the servants' quarters. It is pretty here, I shall stop here, said Gerda, and sank with a deep breath into the reclining chair beside one of the beds. The console bent over and kissed her forehead. Tired? I feel like that too. I should like to tidy up a bit. I'll look after the tea, said Tony Grunlich, and wait wait for you in the dining room. The tea stood steaming in the masonware cups with Tom, when Thomas entered. Here I am, he said. Gerda would like to rest a little. She has a headache. Afterward we will go to Meng Street. Well, how is everything, my dear Tony? All right? Mother, Erica, Christian? But now, he went on with his most charming manner, our warmest thanks, Gerda. Gerda's too, for all your trouble. You good soul. Now, how pretty you have made everything. Nothing is missing. I only need a few palms for my wife's bay window, and I must look about for some suitable oil paintings. But tell me now, how are you? What have you been doing all this time? He had drawn up a chair for his sister beside himself and slowly drank his tea and ate a biscuit as they talked. Oh, Tom, she answered. What should I be doing? My life is over. Nonsense. Tony, you and your life... But it is pretty tiresome, is it? Yes, Tom, it is very tiresome. Sometimes I just have to shriek out of sheer boredom. It has been nice to be busy with this house, and you don't know how happy I am at your return, but I am not happy here. God forgive me if that is a sin. I am in the thirties now. But I am still not quite old enough to make intimate friends with the last of the Himmelsburgers, or the Miss Gerards or any mother's black friends that come and consume widows' homes. I don't believe in them, Tom. They are wolves in sheep's clothing, a generation of vipers. We are all too weak creatures with sinful hearts, and when they begin to look down on me for a worldling, I laugh in their faces. I always thought that all men are the same, and that we don't need any intercessors between us and God. You know, my political beliefs, I think, the citizens. Then you feel lonely, Tom asked to bring her back to her starting point. But you have Erica. Yes, Tom, and I love the child with all my heart. Although a certain person did used to declare that I am not fond of children. But you see, I am perfectly frank. I am an honest woman and speak as I think without making words. Which is splendid of you, Tony. Well, in short, it is sad. But the child remains, reminds me too much of Grunlich. The Buddenbrooks in Broad Street think she is very like him too. And then when I see her before me, I always think you are an old woman in a, with a big daughter, and your life is over. Once for a few years you were alive, but now you can grow to be 70 or 80 years old sitting here and listening to Lee Brewerhart read aloud. That is such an awful thought, Tom, that a lump comes in my throat, because I still feel so young and still long to see life again.
And besides, I don't feel comfortable not only in the house, but in the town. You know, I haven't been struck blind. I have my eyes in my head and see how things are. I'm not a stupid goose anymore. I am a divorced woman and I am made to feel it. That's certain. Believe me, Tom, it lies like a weight on my heart to know that I have besmirched our name, even if it was not any fault of mine. You can do whatever you will. You can earn money and be the first man in the town, but people will still say, yes, but his sister is a divorced woman. Jorshin Mollendorf and the Hagerstrom girl, she doesn't speak to me. Oh, well, she is a goose. It is the same with all families. And yet I can't get rid of the hope that I could make it all good again. I am still young, don't you think? I am still rather pretty. Mama cannot give me very much again, but even what she can give is an acceptable sum of money. Suppose I were to marry again. To confess the truth, Tom, it is my most fervent wish. Then everything would be put right and the stain wiped out. Oh, if I could only make a match worthy of our name and set myself up again, do you think it is entirely out of the question? Not in the least, Tony. Heaven forbid. I've always thought of it, but it seems to me that in the first place you must get out a little, have a little change and brighten up a bit. Yes, that's it, she cried eagerly. Now I must tell you a little story. Thomas was, well, pleased. He leaned back in his chair and smoked his second cigarette. The twilight was coming on. Well, then, while you were away, I almost took a situation, a position, as companion in Liverpool. Would you have thought it was shocking? Oh, I know it would have been undignified, but I was so wildly anxious to get away. The plan came to nothing. I sent my photograph to the lady, and she wrote that she must decline my services because I was too pretty. There was a grown son in the house. You're too pretty, she wrote. I don't. No, when I have been so pleased, they both laughed heartily. But now I have something else in mind, went on Tony. I've had an invitation from Eva Ewers to go to Munich. Her name is Eva Niedepoir, and now her husband is superintendent of a brewery. Well, she asked, has asked me to visit her, and I think I will take advantage of the invitation. Of course, Erica could not go with me. I would put her in Sesame Wheatbrot's pension. She would be well taken care of. Have you any objection? Not at all. It is necessary in any case that you should make some new connections. Yes, that's it, she said gracefully. Gratefully. But now, Tom, I have been talking the whole time about myself. I am a selfish thing. Now tell me your affairs. Oh, heavens, how happy you must be. Yes, Tony, he said with emphasis. There was a pause. He blew out the smoke across <clears throat> the table, excuse me, and continued. In the first place, I am very glad to be married and set up an establishment. You know, I should not make a good bachelor. It has a side to it that suggests loneliness and also laziness, I, and I am ambitious, as you know. I don't feel that my career is finished, either in business or, to speak half-jestingly, in politics. And a man gains the confidence of the world better if he is a family man and a father though I came within an ace of not doing it at all. I am a bit fastidious. For a long time I thought it would not be possible to find the right person, but the sight of Gerda decided me. I felt at once that she was the only one for me, though I know there are people in town who don't care for my taste. She is a wonderful creature. There are few like her in the world. She is nothing like you, Tony. To be sure, you are simpler and more natural, too. My lady sister is simply more temperamental he continued, suddenly taking a lighter tone. Oh, Gerda, 
has temperament too. Her playing shows that, but she can sometimes be a little cold. In short, she is not to be measured by the ordinary standards. She is an artist, an individual, a puzzling, fascinating creature. Yes, yes, Tony said. She had given her brother the closest attention. It was nearly dark, and she had not thought of lighting the lamps. The corridor door opened, and there stood before them in the twilight, in a pleated peak house frock, white as snow, a slender figure. The heavy, dark red hair framed her white face, and blue shadows lay about her close-set brown eyes. It was Gerda, mother of future Buttonbrooks. Alrighty, there's another chapter for you. Very cool. Thank you for listening. I'll see you tomorrow.